Hello, and welcome back to the Spirit and Truth Podcast. I'm Maggie Ulmer, and on today's episode, Emma and I are interviewing Tony. That's right, Spirit and Truth's own Tony Miltenberger. He is the Director of Leadership and Discipleship here, and in this conversation, Tony shares some of his testimony, stories about growing up and maturing in the faith, as well as his deep passion for discipleship. In addition to this conversation, you can hear more from Tony when he presents at the Spirit and Truth Conference coming up really soon in March here in Dayton, Ohio. Stick around to the end of the podcast for more information about Tony and the conference. Well, on today's episode of a Spirit and Truth podcast, we are talking to the Tony Mellenberger. Yes. Or as he's known around the office, T. Wayne. Sometimes. <laughs> What's up, Sometimes. T. Wayne? Yeah, no, it's it's a privilege to be interviewed on my own podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've all had to take turns, so you're up. Praise the Lord. Yep. So on today's episode, we are just sharing, like we have on previous ones, a little bit. Uh, Tony's going to be sharing just a little bit of his testimony talking to us about what God has done in his life. And I, for one, am very excited to hear this story because Tony is special. That's one way to put it. No, come on. No, I, no, I listen, God has done some amazing things and I'm, I'm always honored to talk about what God has done in my life. Awesome. So, I mean, we'll start with a question. I think we all ask, um, how old were you when you came to the Lord? That's such an interesting thought process because I grew up Catholic. Sure. And um, so I, I was always in the church. I was baptized in the faith early on and began serving in the church as uh, in the church as a altar boy, a server is what we called them back then, in uh, probably fourth grade. Hmm. Um, I will tell you that the first real conversion moment I had with the Holy Spirit and the calling that God was going to place on my life was this incredible experience at Mass. And if you've never been to Mass before, think about it like sit, stay, and kneel, sit, stay, and kneel, repeat kind of thing with a lot of ordinances. And this particular day, I was an altar boy serving, and there was an older gentleman priest who was a visiting priest, and he decides that he is his body is too sore, he's too arthritic to put holy water on the people to renew our baptismal promises. Mm. And so it was one of those occasions in the Easter season where they take a bowl of holy water and they take a spruce tree branch and they literally take holy water and they fling it on the congregation as they walk up and down the aisle underneath the hem of an organ. And people are reminded of their baptismal promises. If you've ever been in a Catholic mass before, this is one of those kind of means of grace is what we would call it in a Wesleyan tradition. So here I am, I'm serving, I'm, I'm being an altar boy here, and this old priest who's kind of a curmudgeon looks at me and he kind of waves me over and I don't know what he wants. <laughs> and uh, he, he says, he says uh, young man, uh, I need you to bless the congregation. And I said, excuse me? <laughs> and he said, he said, I need you to bless the congregation and I want you to just take this and I want you to just walk up and down the aisles and fling water on people. And uh, I didn't know that I could say no, so I said yes. And, uh, and that, in that moment, while I was blessing the congregation, I, I remember which aisle of the church I was in when, um, 
when all the hair on my body stood on end mm. and I could just feel the presence of the Lord for the very first time. And I was, I was helping people remember their baptismal promises as a vessel for Christ. And, and I knew that this was something I could do for the rest of my life. And I thought I wanted to be a priest. Wow. Yeah. That was pretty crazy. <laughs> well, I mean, in one sense, you are a priest in the in the Church of the Lord. Yeah, I, I was uh, at that point in time. I was probably in sixth or seventh grade, mm -hmm. and so in, in ninth grade, I entered Chaminade Julian High School, and it's a Marianist high school, and a beautiful school. And there was a, a priest there, Father Chris Whitman, and I told him about this conversion experience. And from my freshman year through the end of my sophomore junior year, I would go have dinner with the Marianists to talk about the Lord and to talk about what God was kind of doing there. And it wasn't an all the time thing, usually Lent and uh, sometimes an Advent seasons of preparation. They would bring uh, potential, you know, people who were feeling that call of ministry on their life. And we would have simple soup dinners at their, their home, which was attached to the school. So it was super weird for me as a high schooler. And uh, all of that was great. And then I met this incredible woman who would change my life forever, and she would eventually become my wife. So <laughs> I met Karen, and I was like, I don't think I can be a priest anymore. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> my heart for her was so big. And uh, we met through our, our youth group. Our, we had a, a very robust Catholic youth group where some of some very, very basic formational moments in my life were formed. Uh, one of the most profound that really coincides with kind of our Wesleyan thought process is this idea of sanctification, except the youth minister at their time, her name's Kathy Shirley. She said, uh, every thought, every action and every desire right now, right this very moment is either weakening or strengthening your relationship with Christ. Dang. Yeah, every thought, every action and every desire right now is either strengthening or weakening your relationship with Christ. And when I began to think about my relationship with Christ in that regard, um, it just felt like there was so much more that I didn't know about Jesus. Hmm. Um, it was really good. Wow. I love that story. That is an awesome story. How often is it? Like, that's really interesting. That's unique. There are so many conversion stories that come from, like, you know, a person is in a place of brokenness or darkness and they're calling out, they're desperate, but you were literally, you were in the house of the Lord. It, it, like, as you're telling the story, it makes me think of the calling of Samuel. Yeah. Like you're in the house of the Lord and you're like, wow, God is real and he is here. Mm -hmm. That is super cool. Yeah. I, I obviously at the time I wouldn't have had words for that. Sure. sure. Um, but one of the things that I know about our family, which is, is kind of interesting mm -hmm. is my grandpa was a, a servant in the church that he was in and he actually died while in church after he had repaired the sound system for the choir. And so the choir is running through their set for Sunday. They're literally singing. I will raise you up on Eagle's wings. He's sitting in the very last pew has a stroke on the spot and dies. Oh my God. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. And I, I only say that in, in regards to this story is that, um, you know, in, in hindsight, in various points of my life, I felt like, you know, I, I've sometimes we hear about generational curses, but I think in this, this moment it was a generational blessing, wow. right? That, that God would 
honor my grandfather and the work that he loved to do as a servant, an unpaid servant. He just knew tech and he would do that. And in the same regards, he's been so generous with me over the years and being able to serve in the house of the Lord. Amen. So. so you knew at a very young age that the Lord might have something different for you. Like you, you've maybe might not have used this language, but a sense of feeling set apart for something. Now, at what point did you realize, okay, I'm going to pursue this journey towards, you know, ordination or education or the, the pastorate? Like, what did that look like? Yeah, it was none of those things. Okay, <laughs> well then. I'll, I'll tell you that uh, I had two really strong communities in my life when I was in high school. And my high school years were a little rough. My parents got divorced when I was young. My dad got remarried. My mom was in a relationship. It was all very complicated for my young teenage brain. Mm -hmm. Really so kind of complicated for my young adult brain. <laughs> so um, there were two communities in my life that really kept me safe, uh, feeling safe at least. And one was my youth group. And one was this JROTC program called Civil Air Patrol. Mm. And in both groups, the skill set that God had given me really had the opportunity to come alive, right? And so one was kind of kind of discernment and the ability to orate, and the other was kind of command and the ability to orate and structure. In both places, there was a sense of order that the Lord just really drew me to, which in hindsight is really interesting when you consider one of the jobs of a, a church pastor is to order the life of the right. church. So when I was in high school, I didn't feel like I really had the – desire to go to college and so on um it's funny the army we we memorized dates really quickly on the 30th of june 1998 i enlisted in the army reserves as a chaplain's assistant so that i could put the two things in my life that felt the safe and most secure together and follow the call that i felt like god was putting on my life and so i enlisted the, the summer of my junior and senior year and began to go to the, my reserve weekends. And we graduated from high school in June. And three days later, I left for basic training. Mm. Wow. Yeah. And so we spent nine weeks in beautiful Fort Jackson, South Carolina, uh, learning how to be a, a, a soldier. And then I spent nine more weeks in Fort Jackson, South Carolina, learning how to be a chaplain's assistant. Now, a little interesting tidbit for all the listeners out there. We, as a chaplain's assistant, you don't have to have any theological training or background, right? They give all that to you, and you don't even have to believe in God. And so there are atheist or agnostic chaplain's assistants serving in the military. For the most part, they're believers um, of something, right? And <laughs> you, you, Well, you don't get to pick who your chaplain is, and a chaplain's job in the military is to meet the religious needs of all soldiers, and so over the years, I've had the opportunity to meet some incredible chaplains who were Catholic priests, uh, Protestant pastors, uh, Islamic is, uh, imams, Jewish rabbis. Mm. Um, and I'll never forget one of the one of the moments of weirdest moments of my military career was when the captain who I was working for at the time called me into his office and said, hey, Milton Berger, uh, we want you to go uh, create a space for the Wiccans to uh, practice their faith in the woods of Fort Lewis, Washington. And, and I was just there to, to be a, a facilitator of space. And 
that was kind of the that's a classic part of the chaplain's assistant job wow. right every every army chapel is equipped to serve every faith and so they're really um they're really unique in that regards that is fascinating that provides you with a lot of interesting experiences <laughs> i'll tell you that the lord just um really created some unique opportunities for me to do ministry yeah. to see ministry and to see the world. Mm -hmm. So I, I enlisted in 98, and in 2000, um, I got a call from a first sergeant who said, hey, Milton Berger, um, we're looking for a chaplain's assistant to go to Turkey. And I was like, I need, first sergeant, can I have 24 hours to pray about this and just talk to my people, right? At the time, Karen and I were dating. We weren't married yet. And he said, that's fine. So I took the 24 hours, I called them back, and I was ready to go. I talked to the people, and I was like, okay, I'm going to go. I said, hey, first sergeant, I'm going to go. And he's like, I'm sorry, that trip is gone. It's no longer available. We gave it to somebody else. And I was like, oh. And he said, but I'll tell you what, I have a trip to Germany for six months if you want to go. And I said, Germany sounds so much better. <laughs> and so, um, so I left in September of 2000 to go to Germany for six months and really got to see that was my first opportunity to see the world wow. and did ministry in germany the soldiers had, were all downrange in turkey and um and so i was there ministering to their families what does so what does that mean downrange uh it means they're in um a different theater okay right like a, an area of the world so they they all lived in germany but sometimes they oh, move gotcha. troops to different areas okay but when the whole family lives in Germany and they move the troop to Turkey, uh, then what ends up happening is somebody needs to be there to minister to the rest sure. of the families. Mm -hmm. Got it. So they call in the reserves to do what's called backfill or basically just fill a position. And so I, I got to go to um, Gießen, Germany and Bombholder, Germany and minister to families of soldiers whose moms and dads weren't there with them. Wow. And we taught them lots of different things I really didn't teach him much I did a lot of logistics but uh, it was a, it was a really unique opportunity and it was probably my first time being a part of a, a Protestant worship community um, because most of the ch chaplains that I was working with at that time were all Protestant I was still still Catholic and um, I would serve with Catholic chaplains whenever they needed me to but it was kind of that first real taste of the fullness of the kingdom of God Wow so um, I know a, a little bit about this. I mean, so for people our age, um, the, the time frame that you're talking about is a, is a very significant time frame mm. historically yeah. and, and just also for people who were young adults in, in the early 2000s, sure. 2000, 2001, um, of which you were, of which I was. So I'm just wondering, could you talk a little bit about the thing I think you understand what I'm referencing yeah. and then just what that meant for you faith wise, how that impacted your military career and what did that, all the implications of that. So at this point I got back from Germany in early 2001 around Easter time mm -hmm. and I was really struggling with reintegration. How do I come back from a full-time job in the military and figure out what I want to be when I grow up? So my personal identity is, um, was really kind of in flux. So on September 10th of 2001, I, I'm, I'm sorry, September 9th of 2001, I drove to Hillsboro, Ohio 
while my wife was on a retreat with the youth group that we really met and formed our relationship in. Our brothers and sisters were there because they were had now grown up in the youth group. They were still there. And that morning I snuck into the, the cabin with the permission of the youth pastor and I proposed to Karen. Hmm. I asked her to marry me. September 9th, 2001. Wow. Oh, wow. September 10th, oh, wow. 2001, I turned 21 years old. Right, so I officially turned 21, September 10th, 2001. And September 11th, um, I was already up when the plane hit the first World Trade Center. Yeah. And, and in the reserves, the way this works when something like this happened, well, nobody knew how it was going to work because it had never happened before. Yeah. They immediately put us all on alert. And so in my mind, right, now this wasn't the reality. In my mind, this was I just got engaged. I just turned 21, and now I'm going to war. Wow. Right. And – that really was uh, um, kind of one of those moments in my life where I really began to think about, you know, what's important um, for soldiers, I think, uh, uh, and probably a lot for pastors. So much of our job becomes our identity. Mm. And that would be a theme in my life that I would struggle with for years and still struggle with at times, mm-hmm. even though I'm not a a lead pastor anymore at a local church, you know, wrestling with this idea that what I do is my identity and my identity is what I do was such a, a kind of a catalyst of burden and intrigue and, and joy, right? I mean, I was super proud to be a soldier. I, I never regretted it. I always, I, I won't say I always enjoyed it, but I was always proud of it mm-hmm. um, and what I and what God had called me to in that space and the fact that I, I got to do so much ministry in the Army. Um, so, you know, it, it was one of those seasons of life where I was being, I, I would say obedient, but I didn't even know what obedience really was back then and mm-hmm. not really sure I still do now, but... <laughs> The Lord and I are working on it. And what ended up happening was nothing. Nothing happened. In 2001, nothing happened to me uh, in terms of being deployed or going to war. And it's a very slow war. War is a very slow process for the majority of soldiers who are involved in it. Yeah. Now, there are there are certain groups of soldiers, a very elite group of soldiers, where war is very fast. And it happens fast and it moves fast. We were not part of that group. Karen and I end up pushing up our wedding uh, a little bit. We wanted a long engagement. We got married in um, February of 2003. So February of 2003, um, we get married. And then in 2004, um, I get a call while we were standing at line at Cedar Point getting ready to ride the racer. It's a fantastic <laughs> roller coaster. Oh, my gosh. And it's my, um, my commanding officer, and he says – uh, and I knew I was in trouble because he said he called me Tony and that, that's not a normal approach for him. He said, Tony, I, I need to talk to you, son. And I was like, I'm in big trouble. And sure enough, he said, hey, uh, we just got orders. You're being mobilized um, to go to Kuwait and Iraq. And so that was that was August of 2004. Hmm. He called me on a Friday. He said on Monday. I need you to go to Minnesota um, to start the process of getting your, your paperwork together. And you'll be there for three days, and then you'll come back. And you'll be in Kuwait by the middle of September. 
And so it was a real, I mean, it was just a real fast life change. Yeah. Um, and w- what happened is called a, it's called a cross level that, where they just take a soldier that they need based off of the job. So they needed a chaplain's assistant to go with this other unit. And I was in a chaplain's assistant job with a unit that wasn't going. And so they just took me, wow. which is what the army can do. That's, yeah. it's what we're, it's all supposed to be plug and play in that regard. And so, um, September of 2004, uh, we landed at Camp Doha, Kuwait. It was 120 degrees the oh. day that we landed. Oh my gosh. And uh, I was on a unit that, that was in charge of theater logistics, which is basically how do we move troops, fuel, ammo, supplies, and, and minister to the needs of the troops. And, um, and that began one of the most in- interesting years of my life. Wow. Emma, do you have any questions? How long were you there? I was there for 12 months. Oh, my gosh. So um, now what's interesting, there's, there's a lot of different stories within these stories. So I'll, I'll, I'll try to stick to the relevant ones. But uh, they have this thing called R&R. And you get, the Army pays for vacation for you to go home for two weeks. Mm-hmm. And you can go anywhere in the world that you want to go, and they'll pay for a, a ticket. I, of course, mm-hmm. wanted to come back to Dayton because that's where Karen was, my young mm-hmm. wife. And so 2004... I am gone for eight months. I come home for two weeks. I go back and I have four more months left to do. And I'll never forget the day that she, she emailed me because we didn't have phones. We didn't have cell phones like we do now uh, that were global. She emailed me and said, call me right away. And I was like, I thought somebody died. I honestly, I thought her grandmother had died. And what happened was she called me and she said, hey, congratulations, we're pregnant. And oh. uh, <laughs> it it was it was um it was such an incredible uh it was an incredible two weeks home is what it was <laughs> um oh and so so i missed the entire first trimester of of my wife's pregnancy uh because i had to finish out my tour in kuwait and iraq and um it was such a blessing i mean not not a blessing to miss that first trimester although I, I generally believe that if you can miss the first trimester and blame it on the global war on terror, it's really a good way to do it. That first <laughs> trimester. It's a pretty solid excuse. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I was there for a year and, um, you know, our, our weekend rhythms were insane. We did, we did eight Catholic services, Catholic masses on, on Saturday and we had eight. Yeah. Eight because we had to, we had responsibility for the entire country of Kuwait and the southern tip of Iraq. Wow. And so me and my priest chaplain would hop into a Humvee, and I would plan out this route, and we would just start going. I, I probably sang the hymn, One Bread, One Body, I kid you not, a thousand times. Yeah. Because we sang songs that everybody knew, mm-hmm. and he was an African priest who enlisted in the U.S. Army, and so he would just, be, he would just always sing one bread one body and it was just it was just all, <laughs> one lord i was like oh my gosh uh and 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 so saturday we would do eight catholic masses all over the country of kuwait and southern iraq and then on sunday we would do the services for the camps that we were at the mm. where we were our home camp camp doha and uh, we had six services on Sunday, and mine was the last one of the day. So we're assigned to a chaplain, and then we get farmed out for special projects. So because I was the only Catholic chaplain's assistant, 
on the base. I was always the one who'd go with the priest because I was also a lay Eucharistic minister, so I could I could handle the Eucharist and help the priest out in that way. But on Sunday, my chaplain, one of who would become a spiritual father to me, he was full gospel. So so clarify for our listeners yeah. the difference because I've. I've heard this story. It's yeah. Funny. So he 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 was an African American chaplain who uh, who did full gospel in the sense of very contemporary choirs, people being slain in the spirit, like people being covered up uh, with you know modesty towels yeah, yeah, and like the whole the uh, the whole deal the whole deal. I mean, and and so what I did know when I first got there is that. There was a reason. My service was at 6 p.m. at night on Sunday. So the day started with, like, the Episcopal service, and then there were all these different services, right. including a Methodist one and, uh, you know, all the different kind of Protestant services that you could have. And then at the end of the day, what would end up happening is that the gospel service would always go last. And I was like, his name is Chaplain Herring. He's a he's a bishop now. and uh, And so – I was like, sir, why are we last? And he goes, because we don't really know when we're ever going to end. <laughs> and I was like, excuse me, what? <laughs> now, remember, remember, I grew up Catholic. So, yeah. wh- you know, I was used to an hour. Anything that was over an hour counted towards next week. Like, it was like, <laughs> we just never did that. And it was very ordered. It was so ordered. And, yeah. and I'll never forget the very first time. I'm sitting in the Camp Doha Chapel, which is kind of like this 1990s version of a half-round chapel. Sure. Um, It it was full of tile and wood and just kind of awkward. And the room was full of soldiers with weapons and gas masks. And and these soldiers are praying and and praising God as if their life depended on it. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure it felt that way. Mm -hmm. You know, in hindsight, I'm sure it felt that way. And so... My boss, Chaplain Herring, gets up and he begins to take his towel on the on his the brim of his forehead and he's he's preaching the word and he's going after it. He's screaming, which I didn't know what to do with at the time. Like he's like, I'm gonna tell you in the name of Jesus. And I'm just like, Oh my gosh, what is happening? <laughs> and then this this guy over here stands up. He stands up in the middle of my boss preaching and he begins to just clap and cheer. And I was like, All oh, heaven's breaking loose or all hell's breaking <laughs> loose. I don't even know. And uh, and I was going to pull him out. I was going to pull him out of the service because he was being such a disruption. I could not understand <laughs> what was such happening. A disruption. And uh, I, wa- I get up to walk over there, and, and my chaplain sees me, and he kind of waves me off. And we, we have a conversation about what it means to be charismatic mm. and, <laughs> and to, trust that, um, to trust that the Lord will, will honor that and to lead it and that people's hearts were in the right place and mm. – um, and, and, they call them hand praises. Let's give God a hand praise, you know. And um, mm. and by the end of the year, I was I was hooting and hollering with the best of them. Gosh, isn't it? It must have been so cool. Whatever you've talked about this period of time in your life, one of the things I'm struck with is just like how how many expressions of how many faithful expressions of Christianity there are. Yeah, and and that I'm just. I don't know. It's so cool. One of the things that I appreciate most about chaplaincy Mm -hmm. is that um, the men and women who serve in that role are so educated Mm. and they're so graceful. Um, The biggest blessing are the stories that 
aren't really that fun to tell. Sure. Because it was a bunch of us sitting in a room, um, grilling out steaks, talking about why what we believe matters mm. with some of the most elite leaders and theologians who I'd ever met. And, um, man, we used to do this ministry where we'd, um, we, this smoke company in Chicago sent us a bunch of cigars. And so, so we had at the gazebo in the center of the base, me, this Catholic priest and a couple other chaplains and a whole bunch of soldiers would just show up and we'd smoke cigars underneath the, the desert sky. Mm. And, um, just, I, I don't even really remember what we talked about, but I remember feeling the presence of the Lord mm-hmm. and what a gift that was to be in community with those men and women. Mm. That is spectacular. So now, you know, we, we get the pleasure of knowing you in the context of spirit and truth. And I knew you a little bit before all of this happened. Sure. You're, you were pastoring full time and I'm just wondering, so there's a question I've been dying to ask actually, <laughs> because I, it seems to me like there's been this interesting, you know, marriage of all of these skills in this environment of the military and then chaplaincy assistant and all of this stuff. It's so awesome the way the Lord does that. And then I know he does not waste any life experience we None, yeah. have. However, the church is a little different than the military in that we can be highly inefficient in the church. In fact, I, I mean, and, and not necessarily, in my opinion, it's not necessarily a bad thing. But, like, I'm just wondering how, like, how did all of these experiences come to bear in your life as a, a lead pastor and just when you came to do ministry in the church and also you know, how has the church then sort of molded them? Do you know what I mean? Like we bring stuff and then. So I'll say this. My first church experience was at a mega church. Yeah. And that's where I really stepped into Protestant ministry full time. Wow. Um, And I was there to do adult education and discipleship. Mm. And what I'll tell you about the the rhythm and the pace of a, a mega church, it's way different than most churches that I would come to know later. And the megachurch and actually the church culture is probably one of the closest things I've ever found to the military. Mm. The think, think about this. There's a, something called the warrior ethos and the warrior ethos is I'll always place the mission first. Mm. I'll never accept defeat. I'll never quit. And I'll never leave a fallen comrade. I could put that on a men's ministry shirt and sell it at a men's breakfast. Oh they, yeah. It didn't go like hotcakes. They, they'd yeah. buy it like hotcakes. Right. And so this idea of this righteous movement of people is this incredible parallel to the military. Well, when you get to a place that is the megachurch where there's an infinite opportunity and what seems like infinite resources Mm. and just large groups of people that you can begin to move and form and shape. I mean, it was the absolute best and the worst Mm. for me. It wasn't the worst for the church. The church is, was an amazing expression of God. But um, the, the greatest gift I got from the church was this beginning of my reckoning of my identity with Christ. Hmm. Because there's this feeling sometimes that I've had, 
and maybe if you're listening, you've had it too, that my work is more important than my relationship with Jesus. Yeah. And those first couple of years back from deployment were hard on my marriage. And I thought that working in the church might fix the pain mm. of that, that season of life. Interesting. And learning how to cope and learning how to become, as Dr. Bellini would say, radically dependent yeah. on Christ. Um, there's just so much that I think I can do in my own power. And what the, the local church did is it stripped me away of any thought that anything good can come from me and that it all just comes from God. Yeah. 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 And, and that is, yeah, accurate. Accurate. And it's not even, um, you know, and I, I know there's probably a lot of pastors listening who are, who are shaking their head in agreement. And what I've learned is what, what a gift that God gives us to lead his broken people. Mm-hmm. Um, so that we can see our own brokenness mm-hmm. and relate to him more intimately. Amen to that. Mm-hmm. And so, the, you know, the local church is a slow-moving entity that struggles with change mm-hmm. and struggles with being uncomfortable. And yet, in the midst of all of that, we see the depth of God's love and his bride, and mm-hmm. that is such a gift is that when you can realize how broken the church is and that this is still the instrument that God wants to use, mm-hmm. right. that fires me up a little bit. Yeah. And and I know that I have a particular set of of gifts to bring to the yeah. the church and my gifts don't always fit everywhere and that's okay and it's good and it, that whole process is really good. So what I'll say about the local church is that it came into my life at a season that I didn't know I needed it to teach me a lesson that I wouldn't understand at the time and would eventually change my relationship with Jesus. I'm not going to cry. I'm not getting choked up. (laughs) I mean, I might be a little bit. That's beautiful. So, Tony, you always ask a question when you record um, your podcasts. Mm Mm-hmm. And you ask, how would you describe the call that God has placed on your life? And I want to ask you that question, but like with a little twist, because I'm wondering if the call that God has placed on your life has evolved over the years. Like I'm hearing all of these stories and it's so different, you know, like military and megachurch and local church and family life. And like, so naming one call, Sure. do you feel like that? is accurate or do you feel like the Lord has kind of given you a big picture but with like smaller movements within it yeah so I I think that the the heart of the calling has probably always been the same which is what what would you describe it as I I would say developing intentional relationships Mm. right from the military to the local church to what I do now at spirit and truth I really just see the benefit of not doing life alone. And and like most people, that comes out of a lot of, you know, wounding, right, when I was young. And so God, we see in Romans eight twenty eight that, you know, he, all things work together for his good. And so sometimes our biggest wounds oftentimes become our best gifts. Mm. And so that struggle to be in relationship because of all the what felt like chaos, by no fault of my parents' own, but what felt like chaos— um, in my childhood 
just created in me this desire to have intentional community. And so that happened in high school. It happened in the army. It happened at the local church. Now, as I've realized, as my need for intentional community has shifted, right, what's happened is the Lord has shaved off parts of my life that I don't need anymore. And so in that shaving off of what was, the calling became more and more specific. Mm. And so today I would say that my calling is is to make disciples, right? And and I would say that it's to make disciples who can make disciples. And, and I believe that that's born out of intentional community. I believe it's born out of intentional relationships and obedience with the Lord. And so everywhere I go, that's the message that I try to bring with me, you know, until God tells me something different. I just think that there's so much transformation that's happened in my life because of intentional community that when we talk about revival, and I was sitting in Dr. Bellini's 2018 class in seminary with um, with your spiritual mother, Jordan, Jordan, and a whole bunch of other pastors, and God gave me a vision that the next revival in the church would be a disciple-making revival, and it'll happen one-on-one and one-on-two, and it'll be fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit, and it will change generations. Amen to that. Yeah. And that's and and so that's kind of been. That's where I feel like the Lord has me in this kind of culmination of, hey, for years and years and years, decades, I've been chasing intentional community, and now it's intentional community with a purpose to make disciples who can make disciples. And so, and it's long and it's arduous and it's messy, but it's transformational when it comes to the individual and when it comes to the body of Christ. Yeah, when you were telling the story about the cigars under the, the... you know, desert sky. desert sky. <laughs> I was thinking, like, I wonder if uh, I thought, oh, that's an interesting picture of um, maybe not sort of like classical discipleship in the sense that you're immediately describing, but this is a formative moment where you're in the presence of God in intentional community. And maybe you don't remember all of the words that were spoken, but you definitely remember the sense of, oh, this is how I'm meant to be. Mm-hmm. And that's. Anyway, yeah. Yeah, I think it's cool. Like, as you were saying, it's no coincidence that as you were learning to take your identity away from work and into Christ, that that God actually, when you had your when as you were forming your identity more and more and more into Christ, He actually is articulating the call, the the work more specifically to you. So that's really cool. That relationship. Yeah, that whole process of trying to get out of my own way is such a <laughs> tedious. It's the Lord's work. <laughs> we yeah. can all relate. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Tony, thank you so much for sharing your story. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you. It's an incredible story. And um, if you could go back to that moment when you were standing in the church and you were... Um, helping people remember their baptismal vows. And if you could say one thing to that young Mm. man, what would it be? It's a great question. Mm. I wonder where I got it from. (laughs) I I would say surrender. Mm. I would just say surrender. And the, the faster you can get to surrender, the faster you can get to the joy that comes from being completely dependent on the Lord. And so 
fighting things and in, in my own power and to all the pastors listening fighting things because I think that it's going to grow my church or fighting things because I think it's going to change what other people think of me. Um, the fruit from that is, is always going to wane. Mm. And the lasting fruit of my life has only come when I know that when I remember, and it's not all the time, but it only comes when I remember uh, to surrender everything I have to Jesus, that I'm not really in charge of anything, and it's better that way. That's been our podcast for today, you guys. Thank you so much for listening. For more information on the Spirit and Truth Conference, head on over to spiritandtruth.life slash conference. And you can find Tony on the Reclamation Podcast and the Practitioners Podcast, co-hosted with Justin Gravitz, wherever podcasts are streamed. Thanks a lot, and we'll come back to you next time.